so welcome again listeners uh, this is our 12th session of glocalize uh, podcast series uh, for the bharat pacific podcast and uh, so we are back after a couple of weeks and uh, today we are joined by us finest abhishek abhivardhan and myself um so we have got some interesting topics in the last couple of weeks to discuss while well, the uh, headlines is china iran saudi arabia and korea japan relations th- these are some of the hottest topics i would like to add uh, in the interim also other interesting development to the list of these two that is the britain and european um, brexit agreement also so the, what's the common point between all these three it's that there is some kind of an agreement amicable agreement that's going on after a see some kind of a bitter diplomacy in the past some years in the case of iran and saudi you can say decades uh, korea japan has been like a zigzag road since second world war but uh, it has been unusually quite bitter in the last few years well everyone know because of the some of the judgments in the korean supreme court on related to comfort women and all so uh, use finest what are we seeing like in this three uh, episodes we saw that some kind of a diplomatic thaw in all these issues i mean korea japan and uh, in, in the case of korea japan and uh, brexit we can think that united states would be happy it would wa- like its allies to be focused working uh, together in tandem but there was something quite opposite that us might expect that happened yesterday that is china kind of having a diplomatic coup in bringing iran and saudi back to having normal diplomacy what do you get the sense of it use finest uh, you are talking specifically of uh, what happened in saudi right between saudi and iran yeah, yeah i mean i'm generally talking in terms of beginning comments like uh, these three episodes there the commonality of these three episodes have been like some kind of a normal diplomacy coming back to practice that's what i'm talking um sure so uh, as far as so the biggest news for me of course was um the saudi iran bit because it has most direct implications for india but more broadly what i see playing out is um in the twilight of ukraine sorry not in the twilight but in the afterglow of the ukrainian war um we are starting to see um new plays being made or we could say players playing their hand at the uh, game of international poker and uh some of these steps go the us way as you correctly said some of them don't really grow the go, go the us way and i think it's important in all of this to remember that each of these countries has agency because um what what i see as commonality between uh, what we've just discussed here is that for the first time the conversation has been framed as each of these countries having agency and each of them choosing to exercise that agency in some separate way and that being either inimical or beneficial um to the americans um that that's number one but number two if i could be a little more specific, and the reason i say this is important is because uh, what we've broadly seen ever since the ukraine war began is this sort of dichotomy between people either looking at the conflict in uh, ukraine as um the the west kept expanding nato kept expanding and russia retaliated or b uh, the russians have just uh, the russians have gotten a little too aggressive and the rise of the uh, cold war era american interpretation of realism which uh, sort of saw big power poles uh, using smaller countries as chess pieces but what you've currently laid out is each of these countries having agency and them using this agency to broker deals that they consider they consider to be important to themselves that's why i bring this up and i'll end with the second point which is on the uh, saudi iran bit it, it seems i think the, there was a new york times article that was talking about um saudi arabia's conditions for peace with israel that it had put the us and in that article there was a line that mentioned uh, in passing of course that um this exercise they described quite succinctly as a hedging strategy by riyadh in order to uh, use uh, normalizations of relations with iran via beijing in order to uh, extract some kind of concession from the americans right or and all of us here know that relations between uh, riyadh and washington haven't really been you know extremely warm or spectacular to speak of so in in this context uh, in this context 
it's also important to realize that india uh, stands to benefit immensely from this because the uh, closer beijing moves to challenging us hegemony in dif- i should say us influence rather than hegemony us influence in different parts of the world the more reliant the us will become on powers that can uh, that can or wa- do want to contain china and uh, within this power play uh, countries that do uh, fulfill this role will get uh, ever increasing breathing room I, I know this is a horrible exam- uh, example to give but it's probably the clearest example i can think of uh, which is the breathing room that pakistan enjoyed for a really long period of time starting in the afghan jihad days and then uh, starting with the great war on terror where you know no matter how egregious their acts got america would sort of just look the other way after a certain point after punishing them just enough because at the end of the day you still need them i'm not saying one is to one that how that's how it plays out but as the coming years will show we will be able to um extract a lot more from the americans than we perhaps previously were and we can already see hints of that you know through uh, the white house or uh, telling the state department to sort of keep the criticism of india to a down low those political article but i think i'll stop with that so abhishek us uh, finest has given a primer a bit of a primer on what went on with china iran saudi can you tell our listeners what and went on with the recent agreement between korea and japan and many people are encouraging it though it can be like some people have said in korea the this agreement or the wartime labor dispute agreement uh, uh, to reconciliate the dispute of that era uh, is quite unpopular in korea at the moment uh, perhaps the first major issue where the ruling uh, 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 government has found unfavorable ratings but still like what does it mean for korea and japan this agreement abhishek i think uh, personally speaking i welcome this initiative uh, on part of the yun suk yeol government uh, to kind of um, normalize the relation between japan and uh, i would say that this has been a kind of legacy uh, uh, like uh, all the conservative governments like the before this the pakune government under which the 2015 agreement uh, was signed um, between on the issue of the comfort women Uh, and subsequently uh, 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 another agreement was signed on the sharing of military uh, intelligence so that so this is not something new which we see uh, whenever the conservative governments come into power they try to ease relations with japan uh, and this has been a legacy issue and if you go back even in 1965 under pak chungi who was the father of the pakune uh, the earlier president of uh, uh, south korea he also tried to normalize relations with japan because i think there is a kind of understanding whenever the conservative government comes that um, in order to uh, to ensure that uh, there is agreement on working on the issue of north korea uh, that uh, that it is important to work with not only with us but also with japan because uh, north korea is not only a threat to um, us and south korean interests but also to japan as we see of that last year they have almost uh, launched around 70 to 75 missiles and many of the missiles have also like crossed the airspace of uh, japan so there is there is a, there has been an um, uh, a kind of intention uh, in that administration both in uh, i would say japan also but uh, in in south korea more so uh, to kind of ease the relation um, and i would say that uh, in japan when the shinzo abe government was there they also tried to ease relations but uh, when the moon jae in government came into power uh, after 2017 uh, this issue became more political and uh, the, the the easing of uh, the relations particularly on the issue of comfort women also got uh, very politicized that's why uh, the whole deal, deal uh, which was done under pak geun-hye was kind of broke down uh, and it was not taken forward and the subsequent 2018 as you mentioned uh, before aditya the, the the judgment also kind of uh, was was seen as very um, was anti japan in japan because the i think the the, the perspective or the uh, the feeling in japan is that uh, we are trying to kind of normalize relations but when but this is something which is always politicized in uh, south korea so in that sense i would say that this is something which is welcoming but uh, i would also mention that uh, th- many people are saying that this is related to china i don't know uh either we can extrapolate this issue to chi- the 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 kind of a uh, feeling in uh, south korea and japan and uh, we can equate this kind of uh, normalizing of relations j- uh, just because of the ra- rise of threat from china i would say that currently it's uh, it's just a tactical move i would i would not say this is strategic because 
for that you need to have a, a bipartisan consensus within the domestic uh, narrative or discourse and current uh, and absolutely like the uh, as you mentioned the opposition especially the uh, the ejemyung uh, who is the head of the opposition he has clearly denounced this uh, agreement and there's there's been so uh, uh, there's been opposition to this agreement particularly by civil society and uh, especially the comfort women uh, the two the, the two there was a petition uh, in which 15 women Uh, approached the uh, the court in South Korea, and two among them who who have survived right now, they have they have denounced this agreement, and they have said that uh, why should the public money be used to compensate uh, these comfort women rather than Jap- Japanese uh, corporations or Japanese government uh, uh, paying for those? So the, it for them it's just a uh, it it just it doesn't make sense for uh, for the public to pay for comfort women issue rather than Japan. Um, so I would say that at the governmental level. Um, Uh, it, it it is something that is that would be welcomed even by uh, even the Biden has put up a statement welcoming the decision. But I would say this this uh, decision would uh, would not last long if the current government would not um, uh, would not have a very, very long conversation or they would not incorporate the uh, grievances of these people, especially comfort women and the women uh, and and particularly the anti-feminist sentiment uh, since the this government has come to power has been only rising. Uh, Uh, so this is also kind of fit into this idea that the government is just trying to bulldoze their decision rather than taking their uh, the civil society and uh, concerns of uh, particularly uh, those those sections so yes so abhishek just to uh, interject can you tell the listeners what does this uh, what kind of a like in short what was the history so that this agreement had to be made basically what does this agreement address specifically like in short to the listeners basically uh, okay so the agreement which is uh, which has been uh, it's not an agreement but it has been an intention a kind of uh, the, uh, the south korean foreign minister announced that uh, that they would uh, that they will pay uh, compensate uh, the comfort uh, or the the women who are who who, are, who claims uh, uh, that they that they were comfort women of course they are so th- it basically says that they will pay those women uh, compensate the korean victims of uh, japanese forced labor through a foundation uh, uh, and this is a, this foundation basically supported with uh, the south korean businesses and the problematic is that this is not supported by japanese companies uh, which are the which is being considered the main accused uh, so this is the main uh, agreement that has been uh, kind of concluded that um, it's something that they will pay by the public money uh, but this is the whole whole thing uh, and japan has also welcomed this so this is the i would say the in short Yeah. Thanks. Yes, Yus Finest, you want to come in? Uh, yeah, very quickly. I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, uh, the issue stems from a 2018 ruling, I believe, where um, the Korean courts ordered two companies, I think they were Mitsubishi and Nippon, but I'm not exactly sure, to pay uh, 15 plaintiffs who were 15 surviving uh, victims then um, reparations, and basically the Japanese had refused citing the 1965 Tokyo Seoul um, treaty where Japan basically gave a lot of economic aid to Korea and they said that because we have done that it takes care of all wartime reparations matters which the Korean government for a very long time opposed and the current government is has created a fund from Korean companies that profited from the economic aid given to Korea by the Japanese in 1965 and that money has been put into a foundation that is government backed and that foundation is going to give three of the remaining 15 victims um the money but the three victims state that they don't they they are refusing the money because they state that they want the japanese to pay them due to um the uh, atrocities inflicted upon the koreans both as part of um being forced to work for japanese industries as well as being sold into sexual slavery as comfort women that that's what i understood am i missing a detail or you know i i believe that sums about uh, that sums up pretty much they should uh, do you agree abhishek like what uh, the thing that uh, you mentioned uh, yes of course there is a continuity in uh, as you mentioned uh, 2018 the court judgment supreme court judgment uh, but i would say that um, uh, the the 1965 agreement which was done uh, between uh, between south korea and uh japan particular that time uh, like may, there's been a lot of uh, like uh, speculation regarding that that money was not 
compensate used for compensation of victims but rather put in developmental works uh so and and the subsequent agreement which was also done in 2015 between the bhakyune government and uh, shinzo abe that, uh, regarding the compensation um, that was also not uh, it was not successful because many of the issues related to for example compensation uh, uh regarding uh, from the japan from japanese government japanese corporation particularly as you mentioned mitsubishi mitsubishi was one of them Uh, the 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 company didn't agree to that agreement uh, and also uh, and mainly the argument is not about paying compensation or reparations in that sense but it's also about apo- uh, like apology from the uh, the japanese government which of course they have done, it, it, like it said that they have done in 1965 uh, when uh, the japanese uh, prime minister came to uh, met south korean government at that time he apologized in that sense but uh, but this is a very controversial issue because it uh, it get more politicized in uh by south korea and uh, uh, i would say that it can be resolved particularly if the go- korean government takes into account the uh, particularly the concerns of comfort women especially the three women who are still surviving uh, and uh, also the opposition uh, but uh, i uh, but i i i'm not hopeful that uh, this agreement will last long uh, particularly keep in context uh, the domestic political situation before bringing in abhyadan just a question do you, don't you think this will last in case like the all the three old women who are alive today few years down the line they pass away like then don't you think this may not be that relevant anymore politically i think most of these issues have been heated up because of the memories of the living people like once the living people are no more do you think like it will continue to be that hot potato uh yes yes and no i think uh, uh... Uh, if 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 this issue die downs with uh, with the victims uh, for example passing away with time that would be just one factor in it but i would say that opposition the social democratic party like the the argument which uh, or the statement which he has made is that after this uh, agreement is signed uh, japanese self defense forces will enter into korean peninsula so this is not only about uh, victims it it is also about the idea of autonomy and the the post colonial memory keeping intact Uh, so that is also like the the memories of the uh, south uh, these uh, korean uh, history is also this is a way to kind of ke- ke- keep it alive uh, kind of so that the relation between both the government is not normalized so that that is also one uh, argument because um, uh, because for example the uh, the military uh, strengthening of the japan is also seen uh, a kind of not in a positive sense but in a negative sense also in uh, south korea mainly in the domestic uh in the uh, opposition parties because they see that uh, where, because they there's a history to japanese imperialism uh and uh, so th- that is also one factor which we which we have to keep in mind so uh, abhivardhan how, how do you see like the both the developments happening east and west of china basically and uh, i mean abhishek has said we should not be reading too much about china in the korean japan thing but at least in the iran saudi thing we have seen direct involvement of china and what are you read what are your readings about it like we have spoken to dr alwite today and uh, we had a fascinating conversation about that with him so can you share some insights what do you think thanks aditya um, i have been listening um, the insights from you's finest and abhishek and they are delightful see uh, china's role in brokering a deal so that iran and saudi arabia you know come at par- come in parity at least to reestablish their diplomatic relations is a huge development uh, like dr alwaite said in that discussion which we will be releasing tomorrow on youtube uh, we can't predict much right now but we can we have some indications so i will share some articles in the space so people can go through them by dr alwaite and other scholars see when it comes to west asia uh china has been involved the economic involvement has been huge whether it is the israeli chinese cooperation whether it is the cooperation of the saudis with the chinese uh iran and china have had a tumultuous time like you know india has the chabahar port issue with iran but recently even that issue was kind of resolved when it comes to dealing with certain things not completely but in certain ways so i think see number one we know for the fact that the post uh, islamic revolution iran is changed right so the us foreign policy view which was on iran that you know what um, the pre khamenei iran which was under the shah and others 
that would uh, uh, you know have a particular viewpoint towards their polity towards their government towards how they work towards their global view will it be the same it won't be the same so whatsoever is happening in iran and whatsoever ha- is happening between saudi arabia and iran shows you know, this very clearly that both saudi and iran are trying to change their internal and external dynamics in certain ways it does not mean that the us saudi relationship is gonna be dumped it's not going to be the case that the us is going to just eject the saudis from their equation i don't think that would be the case the abraham accords will go on let us see what will happen because again we have to remember during the trump era the abraham accords was actually kind of a brainchild of mohammed bin Sal- uh, you know Sal- Sal- salman so i mean i don't think that the us partnership is going up but i think what the trump administration did by ignoring the security guarantees they had given to the saudis at least shows that the real politics is becoming wider and because of this bridging between the saudis and the iranis uh, i think it's good for india also because india has had some interesting relationship with both of them uh, when it comes to irrelevant countries like pakistan you know that it's not much of a discussion so i'll not discuss pakistan but i'll say that i think for india there are certain avenues which have opened there are certain aspects of diplomatic engagement which could become easier due to the the, the thing which china has done so let us see it's a very interesting development but i think china will gain more i don't think russia might gain there because uh, there are countries in central asia and eastern europe which might not trust russia that much just recently for example i'm just ending with this armenia refused to attend the csto summit which is uh, related to the anti nato military organization which is like a which is like a nato in the central asia but it's headed by russia so uh, csto let us see what happens with russia but i think china and india are going to benefit very much let us see how india responds to this i am very curious to see the mas response yeah be- before we further go down here we have been joined by two new speakers rishab and uh, ix guy uh, do any of you have any comment or question rishab Yeah, hi. I have a, a cu- couple of questions uh, for, for everyone here. Um, going back to the recent uh, China, Iran, Saudi Arabia talk. Um, one of the uh, so my first question is one of the levers that uh, that India has uh, in any uh, hot conflict with China is uh, that we can we kind of uh, sit on their uh, uh, on their energy lanes. uh but now that uh, t- now with saudi arabia and uh, iran both cozying up so much to uh, china it gives china another diplomatic lever on us uh, uh, i would like to hear your thoughts on it uh, already saudis have uh, saudis play a big role in our relationship with uh, pakistan in the in the track tours and in any kind of uh, you know uh, crisis situations the gulf and the saudis have a huge role these days uh, i wonder if that's going to be the case uh, if if it gets to a, a hot conflict with china and india were to try and uh, use the uh, the energy lanes squeeze as a lever so that's one uh, second is i would also like to hear your thoughts on um, how um, so my read on on uh, on uh, the saudi's uh, uh, saudi's relationship with us and china is a little different from that of aditya and uh, other speakers uh, i think that uh, there there is a there is a pretty good breach now uh, and uh, the latest agreement is just a reflection of that uh, ever since the hounding of mbs uh, over the kashogi thing um, the uh, mbs in particular has kind of uh, uh, decided to 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 go in an independent direction or at least not uh, uh, dependent on us kind of direction and i think this latest agreement is just another reflection of the same thing so my question in that case is uh, saudis have long been pursuing uh, uh, a, a nuclear uh, uh, i mean nuclear energy they call it nuclear energy that they're, they're looking for the bomb um, and us has been in uh, has been talked to them sorry go ahead uh, we'd request you if you could be a bit specific in your questions i understand your point but if you could be very specific please yeah and also your signal is not that clear like uh, i can hear you only intermittently not very clearly 
Sure. So I'll summarize my two questions then. Uh, first is no, no, uh, I, I think we got your first question. Even second okay, question. So my second question is about Saudi Arabia's nuclear ambitions, and uh, do you think that uh, China uh, now gets to play the role that uh, Saudis have been negotiating with US rather unsuccessfully for the last ten uh, ten odd years? So, uh, Rishab, uh, uh, I noted down your questions, and I think. Uh, Uh, we will be discussing this over the next round of discussion. So, use finance. You would like to address Rishabh's any point at the moment, or do you want to stretch the conversation and address over the time? Uh, I'm fine with whatever you choose because I understand yeah. that we have time constraints as well. So, whatever you say, we'll go with that. Yeah. Then uh, let's address the Rishabh's uh, second question. That is the Saudi Arabia's uh, uh, nuclear ambitions. Uh, now. Uh, recently we have read the article saying that saudi arabia wants civil nuclear energy as a leverage to continuing deep cooperation with like united states etc etc but this came out of nowhere and what does on the other side for iran what does it mean for jcpoa like is jcpoa dead basically like is there no hope left then basically it's so complicated it's like a khichdi in the region at the moment like no one has any idea at least i don't know what will happen to any of these equations so can you comment um, on that oh sure so the way i look at this uh, i'm sorry if i am like maybe going one level deeper um but i think it's important so the way i look at this is through the saudi perspective so i try and put myself as uh, someone in say riyadh and try and look at it from that lens and from that lens uh, it seems to me that uh, the saudis are trying or uh, trying to gain trying to do what india has done for a very long time which is they are trying their own version of strategic autonomy without calling it strategic autonomy because when you all, precisely for the reasons that you just outlined which is this has ramifications in so many different um, uh, so many different areas that are critical to not just the saudis but also to the iranians it it seemingly resembles a khichdi and uh, that's where i i think it helps to see the situation as thus that um, the normalization so if i remember correctly the uh, relations started to go sour sometime around 2016 when the i think the saudis had uh, executed a very prominent shia cleric um, i i apologize if i'm butchering the name but i believe it was nimir al or el nimir and uh, due to that there were i believe attacks against the uh, saudi embassies due to which they had uh, broken off relations and i'm i'm not trying to downplay the importance of this event but if the saudis are to normalize relations they could have very uh, they could have very easily done so much earlier with american with a bit of american aid right um, but i understand why that would be discounted quickly because the americans and the iranians and all of that so on and so forth but if, but still to go as far as to bring in china and then use china as a mediator to normalize relations is more a signal than anything else uh, to say that you want more leverage you want more from the uh, americans uh, as to whether the saudis as to the saudi um, saudis wanting a nuclear program coming out of nowhere i would suspect this is i don't know if this has been common but it was i mean it floated around as rumors for quite a bit Uh, i think uh, between hush hush whispers people did you know talk about saudis harboring um, dreams of having perhaps their own nuclear program maybe it wasn't written down as explicitly but that sentiment certainly did make the rounds more than once or twice and now it's plain and clear in the open thanks to that new york times article and uh, th- the last point i'll end with this um more broadly i would like to stress that uh, this game i i understand a lot of people saying that this is a massive chi- uh, this is a massive gain for the chinese and the americans are sort of you know left hanging in the outfield um but i would like to stress that this gets a lot bloody very very quickly the more uh, we see uh, american hegemony start to get challenged um, in areas where that uh, dominance lasted for a very long time i mean remember uh, the us uh, cemented its reputation in the middle east in the aftermath of the yom kippur war right when a uh, kissinger flies down and uh, deals with sadat uh, has a deal with sadat and forces the israelis to roll back and uh, give up the sinai so if if we if the expectation is that uh, the saudi is reaching out to china and china moving in and china increasingly gaining uh, more and more prominence uh, within spheres that have typically been um, 
typically been dominated by America comes at a very low price or uh, does not have severe ramifications that could turn kin- kinetic. I think it's it, it's time we start seriously analyzing how true or untrue that statement is. Because at least in my estimation, um, you know, things are not going to be as rosy as they once were. Yeah, uh, before coming back before coming back to China, Iran, Saudi, Abhishek, let's go back to Korea and Japan. So, what is the immediate effect do you see because of this new diplomatic effort made by the uh, Korean uh, conservative Korean dispensation? Like, what are the immediate benefits do you see? Uh, like, uh, do you see there? This is just a uh, surface level thing, or like, do you see any deep security cooperations also? Because if at all they both try to cooperate security in terms of security uh, networks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that would also mean China. Like a lot of speculations on if they both are cooperating against China also in the region in terms of balance of power. So, what, what do you see? I think uh, there are, to respect to this, as you mentioned, there are also some tactical benefits, but also some strategic benefits. Tactically, I would say that uh, it would kind of institutionalize some agreements that they have signed earlier, like the GSMIA, that is the General Security of Military Information Agreement, uh, because of the uh, thaw between thaw in relations uh, due to the uh, coming of uh, the Democratic Party under uh, Moon Jae-in. The agreement, which was basically to share information on military. Uh, security that was not uh, that that didn't uh, that didn't turn out to be successful in that sense that uh, it very little was shared between Japan and South Korea. Uh, so uh, so this agreement would kind of uh, uh, re-energize that relations and kind of uh, put those institution uh, and structures again. And we would see going forward uh, in short term to mid term that the both countries would work more closely on the threat of North Korea. So that would be one thing. Um, uh, that sharing information and also another thing is the for example the sharing of information on even in for example in cyberspace so that is also one threat that uh, North Korea uh, poses to both countries South Korea and uh, Japan Uh, and this is also like uh, help US to also like this is a kind of a dream for US to uh, that both countries can ease their relations particularly on the issue of legacy issues like uh, comfort women and colonization. So U.S. would find it more uh, easy to kind of uh, uh, kind of move the agenda forward uh, on issue of China in forward because at least uh, th- this this trio on the issue of North Korea would set up set a precedence or create an uh, create an uh, create a uh, institution that would support a kind of trust between both countries. And uh, down the line, we can see if this uh, agreement uh, holds and succeeds. Going forward, uh, on the strategic perspective, we can see more uh, these three countries also uh, increasingly working on the set of China. But like strategically, I would say that this agreement has implications, uh, especially uh, like uh, uh, the experts or the Chinese would be see would be watching this very carefully because um, uh, historically China has always uh, used South Korea. Uh, between this trio of US, Japan, and South Korea, South Korea is a weaker link. They've always used this idea of uh, not idea, but the the historical memory or the post uh, the imperial imperialist uh, history of Japan to kind of broke this break these relations into somehow, uh, and it has worked uh, very well. Um, they've kind of used these domestic uh, uh, by bipart- the domestic uh, uh, le- leverages or kind of influencing of uh, domestic situation to benefit uh, that uh, south korea doesn't work along with us and japan on the threat of uh, even north korea to, for that for that wing uh, so we that is something we we, we could see uh, going forward and uh, if uh, as i said that if if this succeed um, if all three countries can ensure us japan and south korea that they can at least work on the threat of north korea uh, and if it that succeed going forward uh, we can see for example down the line in four or five years that these country can start talking very confidently on the issue of China, which is not currently the situation. South Korea is still very hesitant to talk about China uh, openly, um, uh, especially uh, when it comes to the its hegemonic behavior in uh, the domestic region. Yeah, so, so just a sm- small point, like, uh, do you think personally Washington was invested in this or like uh, it was a bystander? Uh, 
of course washington is the is is the main uh, link between japan and south korea right now and it has been for for i think two decades it is trying to broker this agreement between south korea and japan uh, but i would say that um, uh, especially after the yoon suk yeol government uh, came into power they there was a kind of shift in south korea uh, foreign policy but also uh, its perspective towards how to conduct diplomatic relations with countries uh, especially with its neighbor but also beyond the neighbor like in um, like with america uh, in north america uh, with eu countries so i would say that uh, especially the uh, current president's policy of global pivotal state like he wants to concentrate on issues which are not only domestically or in the regional but also go beyond the region to issue for example talks about uh, issues in uh, south china sea or about uh, uh, issues in uh, for example in middle east so for that the south korea wants to have a, a stability in the region and to create stability it needs to work with its neighbors that is japan so i would say that of course uh, america would have been a, a, a kind of a pusher in this agreement but uh, i would say that uh, th- this this was majorly uh, majorly uh, a, a kind of initiative by the south korean president because he really wanted to uh, create a stability or create a normalization of relation with japan Uh, so uh, i would like to come back to rishab's first question and uh, this uh, i would like to ask abhivardhan and use finest like uh, where does india fit in especially in terms of diplomatic leverage uh, we have seen that china trying to work around uh, the indian ocean uh, work around the constraints it has in the indian ocean through gwadar port uh, uh, while india tried to build chabahar port in that descent but it didn't work out but i don't personally think iran and saudi arabia were ever a constraint in china's ambitions the more the problem for china in that region was uh, expensive infrastructure to bypass that tough terrain basically to build that heavy infrastructure and couple of years ago if i am not wrong during the height of the pandemic there were reports saying china wanted to broker a deal with iran by giving carrots of like some hundreds of billion dollars in next 25 years but i don't know how far that deal has come ever since i have not seen any reportage deep reportage on that because there has been lot of uh, reports saying belt and road initiative has been quite calm recently it has not seen same kind of uh, uh, aggressive work that it had seen pre pandemic so uh, but personally the iran and saudi arabia question was never a problem for china i think personally even though they both personally had problem for china it was never a problem they both maintained uh, equally good relations not if not the best relations at least decent uh, economic relations with china uh, do, do you want to come in use finest and abhivardhan like uh, where does diplomatic leverage for india fit in like uh, in this space uh, i'd like to ask you fine use finest to speak first and then i will come in um sure so n- number one as i was saying uh, to pick up on a previous point um, what is happening between the saudi china and iran is uh, i at least to my view incredibly beneficial to india because um, india is quite literally the only na- the only asian power that has kinetic leverage um with china people tend to forget this um, i understand diplomacy is important i'm not discounting it but when you have um, hundreds of thousands of men um ready to go to uh, ready to go into an extremely attritional battle um with another superpower in the in a high altitude desert uh, that kind of leverage is something any country um of wanting to uh, wanting to severely damage a rising power would pay a heavy heavy premium for and i think as the years go by this uh, thought will slowly trickle down throughout the uh, throughout dc's china hawks um the second point is uh, due to uh, due to china's increasing uh, challenge to a uh, tradition quote unquote traditional american spheres of influence um america will start to increasingly look the other quote unquote look the other way um when um individuals within america so when i say individuals i'm not just talking about the media people but i'm talking about senators and talking about politicians more broadly um start to ask for increased pressure on india because a uh, there will be an understanding that the more you try and pressure india and we know this from the uh, we know this from past interactions that whenever the americans have tried to come down very hard on india the reaction is the exact opposite the goi starts to get very spooked and starts to uh, try and find other avenues to uh, shore up or consolidate their position and uh, you already see a, a 
you already see this knowledge filtering down within DC, where uh, reports have emerged within. Uh, it was reported in Politico that there was tension building between the State Department and uh, the White House over um, how far uh, they were allowed to go when criticizing um, the current government of India. And I'll end with this, and then perhaps Abhivardhan can come in. In terms of diplomatic leverage, it, uh, you have to understand that India, under the current MEA, has a really good working um, relationship uh, with uh, Blinken as well as the White House more broadly. I mean, if you uh, if you go by the caravan, which is not exactly you know the most right wing newspaper in India, if I sh- if if I can put it that way, yes, fine. Yes, fine. Just to interject, I think what Rishabh meant was basically uh, generally you see the report saying that in the Indian Ocean, India can uh, in the wartime crisis, India can basically choke. in the different choke points india can basically choke china's energy supply routes basically that thing won't happen because of this uh, saudi arabia and iran thing is what the point i think rishabh is trying to make especially in terms of energy supply chains of china i personally think that has never been the issue in terms of land route basically because china has always had good relations with iran and saudi the problem was the heavy infrastructure that china needed to bypass the constraints that the geographical terrains of that region poses to china i think he meant it from that perspective like will india be losing the leverage main leverage against china basically uh, no i i don't think india will ever lose uh, an even more important leverage than just the, the energy leverage which is the ability to position a large body of troops very close to the chinese border and threaten to take chinese land i think uh, to be very honest with you i do understand the energy point i'm not discounting it but people uh, need to understand that the a larger threat to the chinese or the more immediate threat to the chinese is the amount of damage the uh, indian armed forces can do uh, to the ccp by just i mean pardon my french killing off large numbers of chinese people high in the desert right because it becomes very very hard to justify in a post one child policy china the deaths of thousands of chinamen oh uh, sorry not chinamen the thousands the deaths of ch- thousands of chinese citizens right going to war over territory that you know most mainland chinese wouldn't exactly consider this and i think that is a that is a key point here because also consider this if india starts to press on the straits of malacca right and starts to inhibit uh, energy flows into china are you sure that the uh, conflict will not go nuclear very quickly and also remember that they do have uh, it's not like they don't have leverage over india if we start to squeeze their um, energy routes uh, they can also retaliate pretty significantly and they can cut off cut us off from some um, serious um sorry they can they can impose upon us serious costs if if you will so i think the broader leverage here with india is its ability to generate military force um in the east and more broadly the northeast than it is to say you know maybe try and squeeze uh, the states of malacca which certainly is a prospect i'm not discounting it but i'm just maybe putting a different perspective forward um, yes may, may i interject here yes please yeah uh, so regarding the energy security of china i think uh, we can discount uh, us having any effect on them for two reasons one with uh, if the deal with iran and uh, perhaps uh, saudi arabia goes through and becomes fructified on uh, like you know in terms of some tangible gains then saudi oil could possibly be uh, and even iranian oil could be channeled through the caspian sea into russia and then tap into their europe U- eurasian uh, pipeline into china and i think china is already ha- ha- has a very robust uh, intergovernmental rail uh, agreement with russia where it transports by land goods from i think evo in eastern china to europe they can use the very same infrastructure to also supply their oil floors there thereby bypassing malacca completely plus china is also very close to the sakhalin gas fields comparatively and they can tap there as well so the question of malacca does not arise and if if we do choke it it wouldn't uh, impact much because they just bypass us that's what uh, i wanted to say yes sir Yes, yes. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'll be I'll be very brief. The reason I didn't touch up on this specifically is because we start to go into if so, but and what ifs. Uh, again, uh, I had tweeted about this a while ago. I say for now, it's just wait and watch because again, as you said, we actually have to see if this deal survives. I mean, first of all, we are assuming that an extremely expansionary Iran 
and the saudis who do ha- who do get very touchy when it comes to you know uh, who gets to expand influence in that region both don't stop expanding start understanding each other don't arm their proxies anymore don't send their proxies to hurt each other and somehow find a modus vivendi where both of their powers increase within the same um within the same uh, space sorry within the same strategic space right so i think there's a lot of ifs riding here so maybe just wait and watch what happens but certainly I, I, again i am not discounting the energy flows question my point was simply that india's leverage perhaps lies a little more inland which is to say the ability to impose severe costs on chinese lives that, that was that was just the other perspective i was bringing yaad yeah, it yes rishab any small comment because uh, there is only like 10 to 15 minutes of the space left so i want to move on with other questions so rishab anything you want to say only in couple of lines sure uh i uh, actually uh, you said that uh, the uh, real deterrent for, uh, from india lies in uh, putting casualties on a one child uh, uh one child family uh china uh i think that's a very severe misreading of uh the chinese nationalism uh chinese uh, more m- uh, on a cultural level uh would prefer uh death over losing face and i'm not even exaggerating this is coming from a very deep and uh, you know interaction with the chinese society um so yeah the 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 one surefire way of uh, of creating very very deep hostilities with china is is you know uh killing a hundred of their men uh, because that's that's what they cannot uh, underplay and if they cannot underplay it then they cannot back off uh, uh as for what ix guy said uh, i still uh, think uh, uh th- there is mer- merit uh, uh to the fact that we we do sit on their energy lanes uh, otherwise india wouldn't be making the kind of investments it's making in andaman nicobar um so uh, i think uh, the idea that uh, they'll go through caspian uh, it, it it doesn't work uh, but yeah uh, those are limited points uh, thanks everyone for for your inputs on my questions uh, uh... so uh, i would like to move on with next uh, i think uh, one or two questions then immediate question would be now we have discussed what it means if like china uh, kind of benefits maximally from this deal like everything goes hunky dory for china and like uh, saudi arabia and iran cooperates but what if it backfires for china because uh, it, we know there is like a abraham accords on the parallel that has happened right like involving saudi friends in the region and israel will be really pissed off with this saudi and iran deal and if indeed so there are so many scenarios like what happens to jcpoa then what if like iran and saudi arabia just it doesn't work out to go forward with any of this and main contention would be like if iran goes forward with its nuclear weapons program now what happens to the deal again if iran goes forward so uh, d- does the does it mean like uh, uh, because of this diplomacy normalization of diplomacy iran gives up its nuclear weapons program i don't think so i don't think it's such a naive uh, country it has its ambitions so what happens to all those things uh, so it, because i personally think is this is like the first major uh, generally we have seen china from the perspective of like militarization its immediate neighborhood and outside its ne- uh, immediate neighborhood it has only focused on like the larger economic interest it has never been seen from this perspective of being a mediator in larger geopolitical game like uh, and yesterday was a quite a surprise for a lot of people so this is also kind of a face saving effort for china like it wants to make it successful somehow but i don't know how china can make this effort successful without any of this uh, powers giving up some of their ambitions so that is there so abhivardhan would you like uh, to continue sure. on sure sure and sure. Uh, we would like to then ask you mm-hmm. finest yeah we can also take abhishek's points in the conclusion so okay see first of all uh we have to understand it very simply that uh, like aditya said the chinese want to show that it is successful well see what happens is that whenever a new power comes in 
and power equations change when it comes to economic relationships or security relationships obviously the approach changes like uh, so what i look at is that in this current order we are looking at two kinds of approaches that the united states is taking up and why am i referring to this you will understand so i'll just break that up for all of you very quickly <clears throat> so there is the old us a cold war ridden us whose uh, power equations whose security arrangements whose af- approach of multilateralism obviously exists since the rules based international order and all of those things and then there is the new us it's like they are one they they are they are getting they are becoming like a roosevelt thing on their own on certain dynamics of geopolitics so so i think when you look at this uh, saudi iran uh, approach which they are having the agreement that they have so that they could reestablish their diplomatic relations i think the us might be concerned about it uh, could it get nosy or bloody well us finest is very much spot on it could get however i think <clears throat> the abraham accords is a much mature approach to unify middle east or west asia as we know it because uh, the 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 focus of west asia could you know go uh, beyond the usual hard power issues and on, when it comes to certain countries i'm not talking about syria or iraq abhivardhan abhivardhan just to yeah. interject just to yeah. interject abraham accords keep iran out of the equation but this particular Correct. keeps only israel out of out of the equation so which yes. what which one do you think is more deadly or more peaceful like keeping iran out of the equation is more deadly or keeping israel out of the equation is more deadly i think the iran one is <laughs> tested yeah, so that, it's known so, right yeah so, so that's where my question comes in hmm. no it's a good question so see i think the israel one is known with this aspect that uh israel won't be deadly in terms of what happens in west asia obviously it has its own interests and things and we are not going to discuss that much right now because we don't have time however uh i think keeping iran involved indirectly could be a way good to go ahead but let us see because um, i mean how will the islamic republic react and how would uh, khamenei and others would look looked into this because they have had a narrow approach also so <clears throat> i think iran will have to do a lot of warm up here because at least with israel we know that when it comes to israeli chinese relations and israeli russia relations israel is very mature in dealing with certain issues obviously there are issues when it comes to lebanon and palestine and others but yet again you know israel can still manage would it backfire largely we yet have to see that because again uh, turkey is also emerging as a very interesting power and uh, while we are seeing uh, different colors and versions of strategic autonomy i think it depends how would these powers interact for india i think that india is trying to take up some space along with the new us thing that yes um, in the global south in west asia in certain parts of certain parts of asia countries like india may also get some leverage so fine <clears throat> whatsoever china does when it comes to iran and saudi india will get its advantage the us may not do it the old ways like it used to do but i think it's it it might get sophisticated in certain ways and that could be used to get some leverage so let us see uh, then you know we may discuss a little bit about the us india relationship but i think that that could get a little bit later so i, I think abhishek can uh, add some points and then maybe use fine so abhishek you wish to yeah yeah uh, like i i don't deal with china's foreign relations in middle east but i focus on china's uh, climate change policies and biodiversity uh, and uh, particularly last year in cop 15 the kind of initiative and leadership china sh- has shown led to a very successful outcome of cop 15 that focuses on the conven- uh, the convention of biological diversity and after that lot of countries especially in global south felt that at least uh, amid this kind of uh, um, where multi- in this kind of current situation where multilateralism has been challenged and it's facing so much restrictions uh, at least one country especially china has risen up to the equation to to ensure that the issues of global south particularly on issues of for example land degradation and rights of indigenous population has been taken into account so i would say uh, china also saw this opportunity particularly uh, of cop 15 as kind of show to the world that it can 
take a leadership leadership role in issues of multilateral negotiations and i think that would that that kind of signal to the world uh, especially with its conclusion that on the issues of for example climate change uh, where western so west uh, west um, uh, camp has shown some leadership we haven't reached any conclusion i won't say that cop 15 was very much uh, kind of 100% successful but it shown that um, china has uh, has reached a particular area or particular level where it can take uh, these initiative to kind of broke broke negotiations uh, and uh, I, i would put this also in that uh, particular bracket um, that's all so so use finest we have seen that china has not been that proactive in afghan negotiations or any other uh, uh, like uh, any other such diplomatic negotiations away from its neighborhood like i mean uh, uh, but th- th- this this is perhaps the biggest one that it has uh, acted as a third party and it kind of uh, managed to pull off something that no one expected i mean i don't know how long it can be sustained but like uh, how important is, is this for china this to be successful basically like do you think um, i i think i'll be very, i'm sorry if i'm not answering your question directly but uh, to me i can't shake off looking at this from the saudi perspective because i think when you flip the question around right and you ask uh, what a saudi gain from this uh, the situ- the situation uh, starts to make a lot more sense a lot more quickly because uh, c- consider this right um 2016 you have souring of relationships right um you then have a, a strain with your rela- you then have a strain in your relationship with america america then starts moving closer to uh, not i should not say closer but uh, tries hurrying up negotiations with iran uh, or the nuclear deal you sort of have nuclear ambitions yourself uh, you start to look around and go how do i get leverage in this situation while also having a foreign policy that is increasingly independent of american influence uh, you look around for another great power it just so happens that that great power is also a pretty big rival with the us and using that great power to broker diplomatic normalization at least in the short term with a strategic rival in the region you know gets gets the attention of the us and gets the attention of the us pretty quickly and allows you a more space in negotiations in order to gain what you want from the americans so uh, when when you sort of look at it from this perspective the engagement with uh, china makes a lot more sense because to answer your to, to answer a part of the question you just asked which is how long does all of this stay together i honestly don't have a clue because uh, when you step back just for a moment right and you come back for a moment it, again as i was saying earlier iran is expansion iran is incredibly expansionist in ideological terms uh, the saudis are very sensitive about losing influence within the middle east uh, the iranians have invested a lot of time and effort into building up their proxy forces as well as uh, propping up quote unquote their people uh, in different countries the saudis have invested a lot of time money and effort into combating these quote unquote people right and now suddenly for this deal to work it relies on both people uh, suppressing uh, those parts of um, those parts of their policy which they consider or uh, they hold to be most important shaking hands with each other and then somehow i don't know doing a you know a, a, a sort of berlin style conference where they literally uh, divide up the middle east as cruel and new colonialist assaults so at least in my eyes a lot of things are yet to be addressed and you know who knows i may be completely wrong and you know things actually do work out well and every all's well that ends well so to speak um it's all a bit topsy turvy at the moment i would be very hesitant to make any strong um, comments on uh, how big of a win this is for china whether this is a win for china whether this is a loss for america all i'm saying is it's too early to tell and just one short comment um uh, i i think uh, i it is said that i was i was misreading chinese nationalism I, i don't wish to misquote what he said all i'll say is that my reading has very little to do with chinese nationalism and more to do with the simple math that if india starts to uh, kill a whole host of uh, people who are the only support of their families back home due to the one child policy that china initiated uh, the cost of that to the government uh, will start to get will start to add up rather quickly and um, unlike squeezing the malacca strait which can escalate tensions very very rapidly this is a slow burn 
that is if you are a little more cruel at heart or cold at heart um uh, it, it balances in india's favor rather quickly especially when uh, you have a kinetic conflict that doesn't quite meet the quote unquote war threshold that is where i was coming from again i do stand to be corrected here but i just wanted to clarify that up. just a small point before we going to concluding remarks so use finance like uh, now we know that china has enough carrots to do something in the region but uh, beyond a point uh, carrots may not be enough you also may need stick what i mean is basically you also perhaps need a, in a medium term is some kind of security guarantees from china some kind of protections like whatever the region needs so do you think china has enough capacity to deliver what us has delivered in the last century like to expand its influence because it's not just the money right it also means mo- more aircraft to more aircrafts more guns more ammunition more rockets everything basically if you are really invested in the region to protect your uh, it, maybe you want new allies i don't know so is china ready to play that game beyond just economic incentives um uh, they do have the potential but i don't know how successful they will be in uh, replacing america in the region because as i was saying earlier and i think abhivardhan has also uh, uh, you know echoed what i said this gets very bloody very quickly the moment you start to look at uh, china replacing america in a, in a military context because the only thing that will uh, harden the china position in dc more than uh, china stepping on america's economic toes is china starting to step on america's military toes because uh, we could very easily go back to you know misleading george keenan and saying that we need another vietnam to um, contain chinese influence again please don't take this as one is to one but a variation or something like that one thing leads to another and you start to get a whole host of kinetic uh, conflicts popping up in the middle east where you have you know different proxy groups fighting uh, for different coalitions so do do the chinese have the potential yes um will they win the quote unquote long war that is starting to develop i highly doubt it i mean i genuinely doubt it also uh, can i add something to you use finance points uh, regarding uh, chinese uh, foot on the ground i would say it will never come to that because they don't have the capacity to take uh, any setbacks in that direction but one cannot preclude the possibility of chinese arms proliferation like the kind we see sometimes in low level conflicts that are surrounding us right now but and it is possible that in the future there may be uh, proxies of china's may, mostly in the form of private military contractors who will have foot soldiers on the ground to protect primarily chinese industrial and business as a uh, assets otherwise i don't see any higher escalation than that that's what i want yeah also aditya uh, just very quickly uh, also remember that as chinese influence grows not just in places like the middle east but also in places like africa they will also start running into countries like france right so the only thing worse than fighting only america is fighting america and a whole host of european countries who are suddenly starting to look at you with you know very nefarious intentions or rather quizzical eyes yeah so now let's get into the concluding remarks so abhishek do you want to say something in conclusion regarding korea and japan i would just say that uh, uh, the the it's a welcome step that both countries has taken this initiative especially from the south korean side and we shouldn't put china in this equation i don't think it's particularly specific to china it's uh, i think would say it's to create regional uh, consensus especially on north korea and it's increasing Uh, belligerence uh, but i would say that if, if this deal sticks and uh, it it is proven to be successful down the line we may see china uh, increasingly come into this equation and being a factor uh, going forward but just a small point people say that china coming into equation only from the negative perspective but if indeed these two like uh, get together well i also see some kind of a thing in favor of china in the sense that china korea japan trilateral free trade agreement might finally happen like that has been lingering for long time right don't you think so abhishek yes i think yes in the last uh, g20 meeting when uh, both uh, the president of china and south korea met there was a kind of uh, statement mentioning the free trade agreement but uh, currently especially focusing on the services and uh, digital 
but i don't think that uh, yes uh, there there is there is a speculation that chinese president may visit south korea this year especially uh, till uh, june or july so if there is a there is a kind of um, uh, aspiration on both sides that they can conclude this fta uh particularly uh, or bilateral kind of uh, increasing that one but also uh, but i don't think in the trilateral format it would be very easy for these three countries to conclude it uh, keeping in mind the uh, the geopolitical situation and american especially american uh, interest in the region so the, that would also prove to be kind of difficult but i would not say that it is out of possibility that can easily happen like on economics china uh, can easily uh, create a consensus on this issue yes you was finest what would be your conclusion concluding points um okay so on uh, japan and korea i think wait and watch because uh, we don't know how how far this gets and the same for uh, what's happening in the middle east um i for just as a hint of sorry as a dose of uh, optimism i'd say it's probably a really good time to be indian considering that the, the americans might soon be in the market for uh, reliable quote unquote partners who can help them contain uh, what they consider not so openly to be a rising power next guy uh, you have spoken very less so i would give you i would also like you to have some concluding remarks on this issue Hello, Alex. Guy, are you there? Okay. Yeah, actually, no comment. No comments. Okay, okay. Abhi, then can you then uh, uh, close the session by informing our viewer, uh, listeners where can they access the space, uh, all the details like websites and all and. Uh... Yeah, sure. So uh, we will be publishing this once we get the access to the recording. uh on uh, <clears throat> anchor.fm/indopacific so you go to anchor.fm/indopacific you will get the bharat pacific podcast you can hear all of our interactive discussions we've had with ir experts and even ir geeks on twitter via twitter spaces and podcast interviews we are also available on spotify so yep you can hear us there as well uh just search the bharat pacific on google you'll get us right there otherwise our website which consists of our blogs on international law and international relations issues you can find them at bharatpacific.com and also we have today interviewed dr alwite on india turkish relations and uh, briefly we also touched upon uh, china iran saudi issue in the region so tomorrow we will be uploading that in the youtube channel of bharat pacific please do check in that we had a nice conversation with dr alwite So that's there that's it for today thanks everyone everyone for joining thank you abhishek thanks you use finance it's always nice of you both joining us and giving good insights uh, it was though brief it was nice having you ix guy you made some really good points and uh, that's it for today signing off bye